This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss healthcare coverage for immigrants. With me to discuss the topic is the National Immigration Law Center's Angel Padilla. Welcome, Angel. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Pleasure being here. On background, there are approximately 22 million non-citizen immigrants living in the U.S., a number larger than the population of the state of New York. Of these 22 million, approximately half, or 11 million, are undocumented, including 1 million children. Interestingly, two-thirds of these 11 million have lived in the U.S. for at least a decade or longer. Largely because they work in low-wage jobs, a substantial percent of these individuals lack health insurance. They account for over 20% of all non-elderly uninsured. Lawfully present immigrants are able to purchase health care coverage via state marketplaces and receive tax credits without a waiting period. Undocumented or unlawfully present immigrants can either buy marketplace insurance at full price and are largely ineligible for Medicaid, though eight stakes provide coverage for immigrants regardless of their legal status, though these are typically limited to coverage for children and pregnant women. Since we'll discuss the President's immigration action announced last November, it's worth noting polling data shows well over 50% of Americans support a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, and that would mean, therefore, then health care or greater access to health care coverage. Again, with me to discuss immigration health care coverage is Angel Padilla. Mr. Padilla's bio is posted on the podcast website. So with that as background, Angel, since 1996, lawfully present immigrants are subject to a five-year waiting period before attempting to qualify for Medicaid or CHIP, though again, uh, although I should say approximately half these states have eliminated this waiting period via an 09 law change for children and pregnant women. Beyond savings tax dollars, is there any other purpose for this waiting period? Um, no, I think um, so. This, this uh, five year waiting period was imposed as a result of the 1996 welfare reform bill under President Clinton. Um, and, um, you know, it was in the context of welfare reform, not in the context of either what's best for, you know, the healthcare industry or what's best for our immigration policy. Um, and so that's why we got this five-year waiting period that really makes, in a lot of ways, no sense. I mean, it's um, it, it imposed a five-year five waiting period for, for kids, for anyone um, who is not one of the categories specifically identified in that bill. Um, and really, it, what it's done is delayed access to healthcare for a lot of people who really need it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Undocumented or unlawfully residing immigrants are not eligible for social insurance Medicaid coverage. Why are they also ineligible to purchase marketplace insurance even at full cost, particularly since they are good for the risk pool since they tend to be younger and more healthy and of course since they also too pay taxes? Yeah, um, so like you, like you said, um, these undocumented are not eligible for Medicaid and CHIP. Um, and they're also not eligible for the marketplace, even at full cost. Um, this was, I don't know if you remember, but back in, during the debate, that healthcare debate, uh, there was this moment um, during this President's State of the Union where, um, I think it was Rep. Joe Wilson said, um, in response to the, to the President saying that undocumented will not get healthcare, it's like, you lie, right? And um, 
So I, I think this is sort of trying to keep that, uh, make it clear that undocumented, whoever, were, whoever was undocumented at the time would not get health insurance. Um, and so it's, it's just politically, politically toxic, the issue of allowing undocumented immigrants to have access to um, what these things that are, that are, that cost money, right? Healthcare, access to healthcare, Medicaid, chip, and the marketplace with the subsidies cost money. Um, but, you know, it's, it doesn't make a, again, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially when you think about the marketplace. The marketplace, even at full cost, undocumented immigrants and people who receive deferred action for childhood arrivals can't access the marketplace even at full cost. It doesn't make any sense when you consider that, um, you know, what's important is to make the, the exchanges sustainable, right? And so you want um, a healthy pool. You want to uh, distribute the risk as, as much as you can. And undocumented immigrants in DACA specifically are generally younger, they're healthier, they um, use healthcare services at a much lower rate than U.S. citizens. And so what this would do is it would make healthcare costs, it would, it would reduce uh, healthcare costs generally for everyone, for all taxpayers, and it would strengthen the risk pools. Um, so it, it doesn't, again, if you were talking purely about what makes the most economic sense, you would want to include these individuals in these programs. But um, I think because of politics, they were excluded um, in 1996 from Medicaid and CHIP and in 2010 from the marketplace. Okay, thank you. How do or where do then undocumented immigrants receive their care? And what is the cost to the healthcare industry or what are the externalized costs? Yeah, so unfortunately what, what happens most of the time is that um, immigrants, those who are not eligible for, for one of the big um, healthcare, affordable healthcare programs like Medicaid, CHIP, the marketplaces, they often have to delay um, treatment for, for illnesses or diseases um, and then either go to community health centers, which is again one of the places that they most frequently visit, um, and then also the emergency room. So community health centers are critically important for this community because they seem to be the only avenue for, for care, right? Um, and what's good about community health centers is that they don't check immigration status. So that's how a lot of these individuals are able to access services. Um, of course, those are more limited in nature, the type of services that they get at community health centers. There's also, though, uh, under uh, EMTALA, which was, I think, passed in 96 also, uh, anyone, uh, so emergency rooms cannot deny treatment to anyone, regardless of immigration status, if they're in need of emergency care. Um, so what happens is when individuals, because they can't ac access preventive care, when they get sick enough, they end up at the emergency room and hospitals cannot deny them treatment. Uh, and so in those cases, in limited cases, those individuals do have access to emergency services, emergency Medicaid at emergency rooms. You know, obviously it makes more sense to just sort of include them from the beginning so that they can sort of deal with a lot of these, some of these preventable illnesses. Um, but in a lot of cases, um, even though a hospital cannot deny them treatment, um, you know, they will see them, they will stabilize them. Uh, if they are not income eligible for emergency Medicaid, then sometimes they will walk out of that emergency room with a huge bill. You know, so you'll get the hospital that will take them, stabilize them, but um, because their income is too high in some cases, they'll still have to pay for these really expensive services that could have been prevented from the beginning. Okay, okay. Let's go to the President's uh, recent proposal uh, through executive action to reform uh, immigration policy. So in November uh, last year, 2014, he made this executive action announcement uh, to help immigrants um, uh, attain a pathway to citizenship. So the question becomes, and let's just note that 
the courts, the federal courts, just two days ago, uh, uh, issued an injunction preventing the president, at least in the near term, to go forward with these executive actions. And I could just want to clarify that the president's action did not provide a pathway to citizenship. It's just a relief from deportation. Um, and so I think that's a really important point because um, it's really what the president has said and what I think a lot of advocates keep saying is that what we need is some long-term legislative fix from Congress. This is just a simple short-term program to, to provide relief to certain families, certain families who pass a number of different criteria. But Right, they have to qualify. So yes. amongst the 11 mm -hmm. million undocumented, the estimate this would only affect 4 to 5 million. Mm -hmm. And this would, would at minimum allow them to seek employment safely. Yeah, so uh, there's two big provisions in the president's announcement. The first one is an expanded DACA program. That's um, in 2012, the administration passed the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, um, which is for uh, basically the dreamers, kids who are individuals who came here as children um, and who have lived here uh, most of their lives, who no other, basically know no other country other than the US and they're you know, Americans for in every way except on paper, right? And so, um, one of the, the programs that the president announced back in November of last year was that he would expand this program uh, to include more people. There was an age cap previously, and now he's basically lifted that age cap so that more people can benefit from this program. Now, the, the other program is called the Deferred Action for Parents of American Citizens and Lawfully Permanent Residents. Uh, basically, that's just for the parents of, of U.S. citizens and LPRs. And what these programs would do was would be, one, the most important is provide relief from deportation. So in a lot of cases, you know, families, mixed status families where one person's a citizen or lawfully present, and then you'll have maybe a parent who's undocumented, there's this constant fear of, you know, being caught and, you know, being torn apart, of someone being deported. Um, the most important thing that these programs do is it, it sort of lifts that fear, right? Um, these families, these individuals who get these programs won't have to fear being deported. Um, additionally, the programs do make it possible for these individuals to get work permits. Uh, with these work permits, they can work uh, lawfully in this country. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of times, uh, individuals uh, find unique ways to, to work, even though they don't have work authorization. Um, but these programs would allow them to um, to work legally and then also pay more in taxes. And I, and I say more in taxes because a lot of them are already paying taxes, but with these programs, they'll be allowed to pay more in taxes. So to correct my error, then while they no longer would fear deportation, they're still in limbo as it relates to obtaining citizenship. Yeah, they, um, you know, this is a temporary program. Um, it would be for three years. It's not clear how this is going to get rolled out, you know, how the extensions are going to work, but ultimately, they're not going to find themselves in a pathway, on a pathway to citizenship until we get some kind of legislative fix from Congress, which is, again, why uh, the president has said, you know, this is, this is why Congress needs to act. They need to, you know, last year we had um, the big... Senate uh, passed uh, legislation. Yeah, Senate passed um, legislation, and it died in the House. Um, that was, you know, a unique, uh, an opportunity to finally fix this problem, but, you know, the House couldn't, couldn't pass a bill. So the president acted in response. Uh, in, in Congress's failure to, to pass a bill, the, con uh, the president did create these two programs, but it said that the ultimate fix will have to come from Congress. And I don't think anyone's saying otherwise. It's just... <laughs> so, so if I remember correctly, the Senate bill passed with far more than 60 votes. I believe it was 68, 68. votes, correct? Mm -hmm. And technically, the Speaker of the House never brought the bill to the floor. 
many people speculated that it actually would pass, which is one of the reasons why he probably didn't bring to the Yeah, bill. and I think what the what the House wanted an opportunity to sort of craft their own bill, and so you had um, the, 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 the chairman um, from the different committees of jurisdiction sort of working on their own individual bills. The idea was that eventually either they would put those bills together for, uh, for a vote uh, as sort of the House rival to the Senate bill, or that they would also, there was also a, a group of congressmen that were also working on, a, on their own bill. Um, I think that was, um, I think what happened there was that there was the, the Eric Cantor loss. Um, Eric Cantor uh, lost last his year. Primary his left primary in August. And I th yeah, and so um, because I think he was attacked on his stance for immigration, he was supportive of the immigration reform bill. And I think once that happened, a lot of the political courage sort of died with that to pass a, a House immigration bill. Uh, but per your point, the House could have passed their own version and mm -hmm. taken the two bills to conference yep. and hashed out something. But we didn't, we didn't get anything. And so, and, and again, I think the, the president delayed his decision, his, his program. In expectation the House would pass. He gave the House opportunity, the, the Congress, op, uh, plenty of opportunity to pass its own bill so that he wouldn't have to do this and then ultimately decided that he couldn't wait any longer. So I think we've answered my follow-up question, which is that for those four to five million that would presumably benefit from this executive action, that would, correct me if I'm wrong, that would say nothing or have no impact on their ability to obtain health insurance. So um, in 2012 when they, when the president announced his DACA program, um, it was, you know, it, at the last minute the administration, um, the Department of Health and Human Services specifically, decided that, um, so departments have the, can, can define what lawfully present means, and for the ACA, um, HHS decided that anyone who received DACA was not considered lawfully present for the ACA. And through guidance, it also said that um, anyone who receives DACA is also not considered lawfully present for the purposes of Medicaid and CHIP. What that basically did was um, it said that anyone who has DACA is not eligible for either Medicaid, CHIP, or the marketplace, uh, even to buy health insurance at full cost. Um, so that was, I think, a big shock to advocates. We didn't really see that coming, just because deferred action itself is considered lawfully present, and is um, there had been no question about whether anyone with deferred action would be el eligible for the marketplace. Um, but when those uh, reg regulations came out from HHS, it caught us all by surprise. There was no notice and comment period like he's usually done, so there wasn't even an opportunity to, to, to weigh in before the decision was made. Um, and so, as a result, you have um, you know hundreds of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of individuals who have DACA who are forbidden or excluded from the big affordability healthcare programs, affordable healthcare programs. Um, now, in terms of the new program, DAPA, um, those regulations have not come out. And for a while, we were at we we and, and you know a number of other advocates were trying to pressure and and. We're trying to hopefully to convince the administration to not do the same thing for this new group of people. We wanted them to allow them to access the marketplace, um, but you know, even though the regulations have not been issued, um, we expect that they will be similarly excluded. There was a, a big stakeholder call immediately following the, the November twentieth, uh, you know, announcement of the, of the new programs, and in that that stakeholder call, the administration said that they would not be eligible for ACA. Um, so, I mean, it's disappointing. It's really disappointing specifically because, you know, if you think about the president's big, big accomplishments, the big one's probably going to be the ACA. He passed um, health reform, something that presidents have been trying to do for decades. 
um, and he finally got that through. And the spirit of the ACA, you know, no, no, everyone deserves affordable health care, and there's no wrong door. Um, and then the other thing it's going to be known for are these two big immigration programs, um, and they conflict with each other, right? The spirit of each conflicts with with, with the other. Um, so. It, there's no wrong door. Everyone deserves affordable health care unless you're a recipient of one of these uh, immigration programs. Um, and these immigration programs are supposed to try to bring these people out of the shadow and, and integrate these people uh, into U.S. society. And again, they're 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 not given access to, to health care. So it's a it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you think about the spirit of both of those two actions. Well, let me. I have to ask. Yeah. What's your speculation as to why HHS made this decision, particularly amongst other reasons? They uh -huh. talk increasingly about population health. Yeah. Um, it's it's just. It's a political. It was a political decision. Um, again, deferred action is a larger category, um, and and the people who have deferred action do have access to the marketplace. Um, so it really it, it didn't. It's it's hard to, to sort of rationalize why they would identify a subset of this group, people with deferred action, a subset, and say that they are not considered lawfully present by the ACA. I think it was just they considered it too politically risky to allow these individuals um, who were undocumented one day and then uh, had some lawful status the next day to then access the marketplace with subsidies. Um, you know, but I know that some states and some state advocates are actually trying to work on alternative models for providing access um, to some of these, some of these groups. Um, yeah, there are eight states now that provide regardless of what specifically is their immigration status. Yeah, so some states um, are pretty progressive in District of Columbia. Yeah, and so they we have a program here that allows access to healthcare for for everyone. Uh, also, Illinois, Illinois is uh, really interesting here. So they have this program, um, all kids, uh, and basically provide that provides access to to affordable healthcare to any child regardless of their immigration status. Um, and so states are looking for different models to to provide. Um, access because it's it's necessary, right? It's like every, everyone gets sick, and those costs are paid for by you know by the community, um, and so states are looking for ways of making this uh, for a rational health policy. Um, but the the issue though is that there's not a whole lot of support from from the feds, um, and a lot of this can be made made better simply by changing some of the regulations, with, which HHS has been reluctant reluctant to for do. Medicaid state programming. Um, well, for the ACA and then for Medicaid, access to Medicaid and, and CHIP. Now, um, what's what's interesting, though, is that some states do, even though DACA and DAPA are not eligible for Medicaid and CHIP, um, for federal Medicaid, some states are providing access to, to their Medicaid programs using state-only funds. Um, so, for example, New York, California, I think Massachusetts, um, they all provide access to their state Medicaid programs to DACA recipients um, under this category called PRUCAL. Uh, PRUCAL means permanently residing under color of law. Um, what this basically means is if the government, if you're undocumented and the government knows that you're undocumented but is taking no action against you, you're basically considered PRUCAL, right? So you're, you're here, you're undocumented, but no one's going to do anything about it. Um, under under this pre-call uh, eligibility, some states are providing access to their Medicaid program, but again, that's only through state state dollars. Money, yeah, because again, federal dollars are, are prohibited because of the, the exclusions. Well, the Illinois governor just yesterday announced substantial Medicaid cuts. But let me—we have time for one yeah. last question. Yeah, sure. Going forward, where does the Congress go? Where does the administration go? What can we look forward to, if anything, over the next couple of years, as it relates to improving health care for immigrants? Um, 
Well, I think you're not going to solve this problem without some kind of uh, big immigration reform. I mean, this is a legislation. Yeah, uh, we're going to need a bill from Congress, and it needs to be something that the president can actually sign. Um, you know, with this conservative Congress, um, you know, with, where the majority of the Republicans are split in a lot of ways about what they want to do, we we are going to need a bill that that the president can sign that is going to bring these people out of um, out of the shadows and get them on a path to legal uh, to citizenship, basically. Um, now, the issue is that what we've already seen is that in the immigration, for example, the immigration bill that we saw out of the Senate in two thousand and thirteen. Um, these immigrants were also, even though they they it would grant them legal status, it it barred them from accessing public benefits, the ACA. Um, so even if we get immigration reform, more than likely we're going to see uh, another bar on access to to healthcare services. So I think in order to 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 fix this problem, it's going to happen uh, at the state and local level first, um, where it's like I said, states. Finding unique ways of providing access. Um, there's some cities who are taking up, you know, new programs to provide access, uh, and then it's really overturning these these prohibitions, right? The 1996 um, welfare reform restrictions that created the five-year waiting period and, and sort of uh, excluded a bunch of other immigrants from from accessing public benefits and healthcare. Um, that's really need, we need to sort of we need to address those restrictions. Without addressing those restrictions, um, you're always going to have this subset of, of immigrants who are here, a lot of them lawfully present who don't have access to affordable health care. Um, and that becomes a big public health risk. Um, that also means that it's uh, that the costs are, it's not the most cost-effective way of doing things. Uh, it means that tax rates are going to pay more. And it means it has a negative impact on our economy, our, on our economy generally because, you know, without a healthy workforce, um, we don't have a healthy economy. So unfortunately, it's it's one of these issues where it's hard to see uh, a clear path forward that really solves all these problems. It's it's immigration and health. It's one of the two most politically toxic issues in our today. So, well, Angel, sorry, we're at our time boundary. So thank you for this discussion. Uh, very welcome and appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others. To see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.